This week on Investigating Pathways, I'm joined by Arjun Lal. Arjun is a four times founder, having founded companies including Fantasy Congress, Jam Legend, which was acquired by Zynga, Renzu, which was acquired by SurveyMonkey, and most recently, he's working on Rocket and Hireflow, recruiting agencies that are powered by machine learning. Today, we talked through Arjun's journey as a founder straight out of college and the key experiences he's learned from over the years. Hey, hey Arjun, how are you? Good. Sorry, I'm running a few minutes late, but um, good to good to connect. Absolutely, no worries. Thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. So, for those listening who don't know who you are, could you tell me a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Sure. Um, my name is Arjun Lal. I am a co-founder at a company called Rocket. Um, we're an AI-enhanced recruiting uh, platform. Um, we also have a product called Hireflow, which is um, a recruiting tool uh, used by recruiters uh, across the globe that helps with um, outreach automation and AI sourcing. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about like your origin story, your life lead as a kid leading up to the time where you went to college. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll, I'll try to think of like the most salient points of my childhood, but I think um, the things that probably have shaped me the most into who I am today um, probably start with the fact that I grew up in my household with my grandparents as well as my parents. And um, my grandfather, who um, had no college education, he was a, a teacher and a small businessman by profession, was actually the first person in the, our house to get a PC uh, back in the 80s. And uh, keep in mind, this is when he was in his 60s. And so it was, it was pretty impressive that um, you know, someone at his age at that time was um, kind of pushing forward with, with technology, but he was always fascinated with the latest technology. It always seemed like he was the first one in our family to get, I don't know, a computer or a scanner or a printer or whatever it was at the time. Um, but yeah, but I mean, that means basically when I was around five, I vividly still remember sitting on his lap and playing Reader Rabbit and Math, Math Blaster on his PC and um, just having the influence of one, being exposed to technology that early. But I think um, probably more importantly, I saw that he was a lifelong learner. And it didn't matter that he didn't have a college education, didn't have any formal training in technology, but um, he learned and figured it out. And um, I think that did a lot to, to shape me um, in, in terms of having that attitude. Um, yeah, I guess, and then to continue from there, I think, that initial spark, spark interest in technology and, and in particular in computer games. So, you know, I love playing games on my Super Nintendo and Nintendo 64 and then PC eventually. Um, and, but beyond just playing the games, I think I really love thinking about how they worked as well. And um, I think what really helped make the jump for me from just being a consumer of technology and then becoming a builder was um, in seventh grade, I saved up to buy a graphing calculator, which I realize is kind of a nerdy thing to do, but I really wanted to play uh, games in math class. <laughs> so uh, I saved up and got a TI-83, um, which is silly that they still cost as much today as they do then. But <laughs> I was disappointed after I, I got the calculator that I realized it didn't come with the serial port cable to connect it with your computer. And so I... Uh, I, I like had no games on it and I didn't really like, I had to like, get them from my computer to the calculator. Um, 
And so I'm basically manually typed a program into the calculator in an extremely slow way, but that actually didn't work because I don't think I typed it in with the right syntax. Um, and so I got frustrated about that. And eventually I just opened up the, the TI-83 manual, the like thick book that it came with. And there was a chapter about writing basic programs. And it was more for you to like write programs to help you with like, basic math and stuff. But I just listed all the functions that were in the calculator. And I kind of, from there, figured out how to um, And so that was, that was huge. Like I just got hooked. I, I basically just made something out of thin air as far as I was concerned. Uh, you know, I loved Legos as a kid. You know, with Legos, you still need all the pieces. And I always wished I had like more wing pieces or more of like the cockpit pieces because like, I love to make planes. Um, but with the code and on my calculator, I literally could just make these components out of nothing. Um, and that was really powerful. Um, so that was one thing that was that, that was pretty huge. Um, but beyond that, then I I was able to share that program with my friends at school, um, which was really cool. And they, and I, I guess this Pong game went viral. It was like you know, all the five kids at my school that had a graphing calculator. But you know that the transfer cable, we just transferred them the app, and then it was really cool to just see yeah. um, my friends. Uh, playing a game that I had built. And so I think that like you know, not the ability to make it, but then share it, that was extremely powerful. And I think that shaped a lot of my desires and interests um, you know, moving forward from there. That's uh, awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, I can talk more about the things I did through middle school, high school. I was, <laughs> I was you know, really fascinated by the stuff, but, but you, you, you tell me what's most, most interesting. Sure. So now I'm curious, um, going off of like these few experiences that you talked about, what was your college experience like? Where'd you end up going? What'd you end up working on? I know you founded a company there, right? So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, I went to college in a school called Claremont McKenna uh, outside of LA. Um, and I, um, I mean, I'll quickly say that through the rest of middle school, high school, I was really fascinated with computers and programming and taught myself more and more and uh, you know, built some software that I sold to uh, other classmates and things like that <laughs> during the dot-com boom when there was a lot sorts of like money flowing around. Um, but by the time I got to college, I knew I liked programming, but I wasn't sure if that was what I wanted to do for sure. I ended up majoring in, in economics, but um, I was always had some side project going just like I did in middle school or high school, there was always some side project I was working on. Same thing in, in college. And, um, uh, you know, more or less from there, um, was, was able to kind of learn more about technology and building things. And luckily, you know, one of those projects did end up turning into my first company. And so even though I didn't set out to um, be an entrepreneur or start a company, necessarily in college, um, it kind of was lucky that, that so that's what happened to be. Got it. So let's talk a little bit more about the company that you ended up starting, right? So I'm curious, most high school, most college uh, students these days, at least from what I know, are like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go intern for like XYZ big tech firm. How come you were more interested in like working on your own projects and how did that eventually segue into building uh, your company? Yeah, I think, yeah, first of all, I think I was lucky, like I brought my grandfather up before, but I'm lucky that both my grandfather and my dad were both in business. Um, and 
and they were in business in, in, in ways that they went into things they didn't know anything about. My, my grandfather at some point was was cutting deli meats as a grocer in, in England, and he was a lifelong vegetarian, <laughs> but he figured it out. And my, my dad was a trained physician, but he went into real estate. And so I think having that frame in my mind, one, made me comfortable jumping into things I didn't know, but also I think I was very clear that I did want to start a business, and along with just the excitement of seeing the first dot-com bubble and everything that happened there uh, made it very clear to me that I knew I wanted to start a company. Um, it was just a matter of when. And I think at the time, I, I, I mean, when I was in college, I did think, I did, first of all, do inter internships. I had an internship at, at, you know, at Bear Stearns, the investment bank, um, my, 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 before my senior year. And I thought I would probably go work for a few years and then start a company. And um, just so happened that I kind of lucked into it um, before that. Um, but uh, I, I was lucky in a way I was able to kind of do dual paths. So I started, I had different side projects, um, but uh, more or less my, what became my first company called Fantasy Congress was um, an idea of, a, of, a, of my co-founder, but just at that time a friend, and he knew I was interested in building software on the side of, uh, of what I was doing in the class. And he said, I have this crazy idea. All my friends play fantasy football and they think it's so much fun. Politics, can we make fantasy Congress where you pick members of Congress and draft them and make a fantasy game out of that? And I thought that sounded interesting enough to, to work on. And so um, we worked on it during the school year. And then during the summer, I had an internship at, at Bear Stearns, the investment bank. And so I would spend all day slogging away doing that. And then I'd come home in the evening and I'd work on fantasy Congress at, at night. Um, and so I, I kind of tried to do both, basically. Um, but you know, luckily we launched Fantasy Congress in the, the, the fall after that, and um, had some some good success early on, which which helped us on our way. Got it. So tell me a little bit about what the process was like for you to work as an intern at you said Bear Stearns, uh, work on your own company, and then also have the whole like stress load of college at the same time. How did you manage all of that? Yeah, I. <laughs> when I think back to it now, I'm kind of, I'm somewhat impressed. <laughs> uh, I think you just have this mentality of just working a lot and working all the time, I suppose. But, yeah, I, you know, I had fun in college too. But I think, um, I think because I was just so interested in, had so much fun building things and in, in, in coding, um, that it didn't feel as much like work. It almost just felt like something I was doing to, to enjoy um uh you know what what free time i did have and i think there was some excitement around it um i was also lucky and was clever in terms of getting some of the work i did for fantasy congress to count as credit for some of my computer science classes and some of my other classes as well so i tried to you know be smart about you know getting getting some amount of work to, to count for two things um but definitely that summer where i was doing the banking internship and this was was yeah, a bit crazy um, but somehow made it work. And then luckily by senior year, when we launched Fantasy Congress, um, I was ahead on classes. And so I was able to take a, a lower course load to actually run that business in parallel when it got much more time consuming. Awesome. So once you graduated, did you continue working on Fantasy Congress? Uh, did you work somewhere else? What did you end up doing once you graduated Claremont McKenna? Yeah, so um, I guess just to tell the story of Fantasy Congress a little bit more, but we launched it in 2006, right at the 
right before the um, congressional elections in the fall. And good time. the timing was really good. And in our, our, we started using it in a class, in a government class at college. We had like a few hundred people basically playing it. And our professor told uh, some other folks at, at the, the college about it. And the, the school basically helped us pitch the story <laughs> to some, some publications. And the New York Times picked it up. And so we got New York Times coverage. And from there, it was just gangbusters. We were all over the media on um, you know, cable news, Time Magazine, LA Times, like most major uh, news outlets. And basically the site went from being 400 users used in the, in, in the class to 40,000 users in a couple of weeks. And wow. it was just crazy insane growth. Our databases were crumbling. I didn't know how to like index our <laughs> database. And like we had all sorts of problems that were quickly solved once I figured these things out. Um, but it very much went from side project to, wow, this is credible, there's interest, there's actually something here. And we had to make the decision of, do we now take this as a full-time uh, company? Or, you know, at the time I was also applying to jobs and so do, do we go down that path? And so we decided to take the path of, of running it full-time. And um, so up until the point we graduated, we continued to um, work on it in parallel with our class loader. And after we graduated, we actually moved out to Washington, D.C., um, just to be in the center of politics and um, continue working on the project. Wow, that's some commitment. Uh, so, yeah, so um, when did you end up moving away from Fantasy Congress and how come? Yeah, we, we ran Fantasy Congress for about a year after we graduated. So I think all in all the project, we were roughly two years old at that point. Um, we went away from it just because we weren't making enough money on the product to feel like it was it was really going to be worth it. We um, found we had a really strong following in the educational sector. So a lot of high school and college teachers were using it in the classroom as a, as a tool to teach about current events and government, but it was a difficult sector to get to pay or to monetize. And so we never really cracked the nut on that. And we made ends meet by basically contracting and consulting our own effort or, or my co-founder apps for other organizations. And so we built um, an app for the Politico and the Sunlight Foundation and other organizations. And so that helped us pay the bills. But we quickly realized that we'd probably just end up turning more into software consultants than really being able to pursue everything we wanted to do with Fantasy Congress. So we decided to shut that down and, and try our uh, role in another type of product altogether. Got it. So I know the second company you ended up founding after uh, Fantasy Congress was Jam Legend, right? So mm -hmm. I'm curious how come you ended up founding another company at Jam Legend instead of, you know, just going down the standard path, which I'm sure most of your college classmates must have been doing, which is just working a tech job or some other sort of like economics based job in your, uh, in your case. Yeah, uh, I think, again, it was just, uh, we loved what we were doing. It was so basically we moved out to DC. I had two other co-founders, Ryan and Andrew. We lived in an apartment outside of DC and we worked in that apartment. Um, there were days where I'd probably not go outside and that didn't bother me whatsoever. Um, but yeah, we, we loved what we were doing and I was super lucky to have amazing co-founders and we loved working together. And so I think it was, um, we very much believed that if we could figure out how to at least support ourselves in our lifestyle, 
um, without taking a job. We would just want to continue building building software. And I, I always just thought of like, you know, money as you know, if I, if I could just make this much money, I could incubate another startup. I'm like, that's all I need to be able to do. Like that was my measure of success was just having enough money that I could live off like you know some meager amount of food and just keep building companies. And so there was almost like no thought. I, I didn't. I never even applied to. I haven't applied to a job since I graduated. I've never like thought about uh, you know. So as you just take a job, and it always was just like, how do we make it work so that we can continue building companies? Got it. So tell me a little bit about the risk analysis that you did. I'm sure you had some point after winding down um, Fantasy Congress that you were like, you know, does it make sense for me to go to a normal job or do I just found another company? So tell me sort of about the risk analysis that you did. How did you justify the risk to yourself that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have a successful company, if I'm going to make money, but it's worth it anyways. Yeah, I think, you know, part of it is that we were, we had just graduated. We, we didn't have very far to fall. <laughs> so I think that was part of it, right? Like when you're early on, um, you're, we didn't, I didn't have any responsibilities. I had minimal costs. We were really lucky. We had uh, a dirt cheap rent um, and because of, of a family connection from my co-founders. And so like, basically like we had a, a lot to help us out. First of all, just on like minimizing the, the downside. I was pretty lucky knowing that I could, if all things went bad, I could just go crash on my parents' you know, house and like live back at home if I really needed to like that, that, you know, so again, like the worst case scenario was actually not that bad. It was actually like very good compared to most people in the world. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think it was actually interesting right around the time we were shutting down fantasy Congress, we were not unsure what we were doing next. Um, we actually went to South by Southwest. This was 2008 and we just figured it'd be a good chance to just expose ourselves and meet people and, and see what might happen. And, um, in a crazy enough way, um, we ran into Jeff Bezos at an event there and, uh, he talked to my co-founders and I about his regret minimization framework. And I think that was also important, which is just, uh, you know, what would we regret more? Uh, you know, and, and so I think that was really helpful. It's like, we would definitely regret not having taken a stab at, at starting something new. And I think that helped, um, versus the, you know, if you, the, the, the roll of the dice fails, uh, you know, that didn't seem like it'd be so bad. Awesome. So I know you've mentioned uh, your co-founders a few times already, but tell me a little bit more about them, right? How did you all get to meet? How did you uh, get to know them well enough that you were like, you know what, it makes sense for me to start a company with them? Yeah, I think so. Uh, all three of us went to Claremont McKenna together. We're all the same class. Uh, Andrew and I had classes together, you know, kind of more on the accounting econ side. And then Brian and I had classes together on the computer science side. Um, and so uh, I'd gotten to know them both independently from that perspective. Um, when we decided to work together, we were not necessarily deciding to work together as co-founders. It would more just seemed like, oh, we want to build something together. Um, and uh, sorry if I cut out, but um, which is more or less saying it was just decided to build something together. It was a very different calculus than committing to we're going to start a company together. We're going to live and work together for a few years. I think had we 
had I even known that, it would have felt like a, a bigger deal, but it didn't feel like a big deal at the time. And luckily we, we found a good working vibe as we worked together. Um, and I think that made it more, it made it more comfortable to decide to turn Fantasy Congress into a company because we knew that there was a good dynamic in the team and that we, we complemented each other really well in our skill sets. So I feel really lucky that that all happened to work out. And um, I think that was one of the reasons why we started Jam Legend because we just, we had a good team. We, at that point, we had built multiple products beyond Fantasy Congress because we did this consulting. And so we knew we had a good team. We knew we had a good structure and a good way of working together. So it seemed like why, why break that up? Got it. Um, so I'm curious about these side jobs and the consulting jobs that you mentioned a few times now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you worked on? You mentioned a little bit before, but um, tell me a little bit about your motivations for why you worked there, what types of things you worked on. Is there anything that you're super proud of uh, while working up, uh, like your consulting gigs, any of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a great, uh, great learning opportunity. N none of them were, I think, were that commercially successful. But for example, we partnered with the Politico to build this game called Kingmaker during the 2008 presidential election. And so it was this really cool app where they basically made it into a contest and the winner got tickets to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And so this was the presidential, it was largely based on the primaries. And so it was around the primaries where, um, you know, President Obama and, and, uh, and Hillary Clinton were kind of facing off along with, you know, many others. And we kind of come up with this um, pretty cool way that, that you could kind of uh, place your bets on who you thought was going to win each of the primaries and all the way up, up to um, up to the, the presidential election. And so, um, you know, it was really cool working with a big organization like the Politico, for example, and and um, having some of their resources and, 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 and kind of understanding um, that dynamic. I think my biggest mistake and, and our biggest mistake was probably um, I think I've tried to make the thing too fancy and too complicated and not enough understanding and talking to the users and really understanding what, the, what they wanted. And I think I made a product that probably made sense for techies like me, but not understanding that the you know politicos that are really into this stuff are not going to care about all the minutia of, of like the cool UI that we made and instead, you know, just wanted to probably focus on the politics. And so I think had we done better at understanding the user and their needs and what they really wanted, we probably would have hit on a product that, that would have been more successful commercially. Nice. So um, now I want to talk a little bit about um, the exit of Jam Legend, right? So can you tell me a little bit about what the acquisition looked like, the thought process behind why have the company acquired at all, and what the literal process of acquisition was like for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it's probably hard to sum up, but just to give a little context. Um, so, you know, Jam Legend, um, we had decided to start uh, when we were still in Washington, D.C. We went through an incubator program called Launchbox Digital um, uh, in D.C. And after that, we moved to San Francisco to continue working on the project. Um, we, it was a strange time right around the 2008 banking crisis. And we were, you know, we managed to fundraise an angel round, but it was definitely difficult getting it off the ground. But um, we then, you know, struck upon some real product market fit and um, had some pretty incredible growth and grew to, I think, close to a million 
monthly actives a little shy of that and um it was pretty amazing to see see some of that growth um it was definitely you know a real chord that we had struck <laughs> with 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 jam legend um at some point in that zynga had reached out about an interest in acquiring our company and um I think my co-founder Andrew was probably the more magician behind all this uh, M&A and kind of business side of things, but um, he did have some conversations with them. But eventually, at some point, we said, "No, we're just we're just so excited about everything we can do on our own. We had no interest in, in selling whatsoever." Um, about a year after that, I think the dynamics had really changed, and Facebook gaming games on Facebook had become something really incredible. I think at that point, Zynga had launched Farmville, um, and we, we still had our web-based game. And um, you know, we tried making a, a Facebook version of, of Jam Legend, but it just didn't take in the same way. And so we started to realize that, oh, look, maybe uh, this Zynga company actually is doing something pretty amazing, and, and they know what they're doing. And we probably felt uh, less assured about our future path. And so I think at some point, you know, there's just this like, uh, this balance between how confident and bullish you are and then, you know, how you feel about the viable alternatives. And so more or less, you know, at that point a year later, we, we reopened up those, those conversations and we're talking to several other companies as well. Um, and we ended up um, choosing Zynga because they, they, they seemed like the best fit and we were most excited about that option. Got it. So uh, what did you end up working on once the company was acquired by Zynga? Did you end up at Zynga for a few months, a few years, and if you did, what were you working on there? Yeah, so um, Zynga acquired uh, Jam Legend, um, but then they they shut down the product, and so basically we, um, uh, but we basically I, I had, a, had a choice of do you want to be uh, an engineer at Zynga or do you want to be a product manager at Zynga, and so I was uh, interested in in exploring what product management was. Um, I had been primarily coding with most of my time prior to that. Um, so I decided to become a product manager and um, they put our team onto Farmville, which um, I feel amazingly lucky about because it was an extremely successful product with a, a really amazing team. And so I immediately got to work with some really talented product managers and I learned a ton, uh, even just like, I remember that first week just was eye-opening to like see some of the secret sauce about how Zynga was able to Make things work and and uh, just how their analytical rigor how strong that was and how they were able to measure and really understand what was going on with the product and immediately i thought man if i just know this i should go back and, and make jam legend again because it's it's just uh I, I just felt like i learned so much so quickly got it so how come you ended up uh moving away from zynga a few years in so i stuck with zynga I, I, like i said i joined farmville as, as a product manager at, I kind of worked my way up through the team there um, into a lead PM, and then it was eventually director of product on Farmville. And so I managed our team of about 15 PMs there. Um, and it was an amazing experience and really learned a lot in the process. And it was, um, it was just a, a ton of fun. I was working with, again, really talented people. And when you have um, such a big user base and people that are so passionate about your product, it's really cool to uh, be able to build um, features, uh, you know, for them and just see see the kind of the delight 
uh, that you get from the user side and also see the success we were able to drive from the business perspective. Um, and so that was, it was tremendous. I really enjoyed it. Um, eventually I had an itch to um, want to start working on some new games as well. So I switched over onto the mobile side and started working on a racing game there. And um, uh, eventually at some point I decided that uh, you know, it was, it was time, I was feeling the itch to, to get back to my own entrepreneurial journey. And so mm-hmm. after for about three years at Zynga, that's when I decided to leave and uh, get back out to, to starting with the company. Got it. So uh, a lot of the things that you just, so there's a lot to unpack there, obviously, right? But I want to talk about some of the learning lessons uh, you mentioned. What is like the biggest takeaway you had from Zynga that you ended up instituting in your next company or companies? <laughs> yeah, I think, like I said, the the analytical rigor um, was big. And I think that, I think one of the things was just this attitude and an approach that, uh, you know, you could build a, a product or you could build a feature in a product and it, it may not take, but it, it's not necessarily a failure if you can learn something from it. But a true failure is doing something or building something in your product or changing something in your product and not learning something from it or being able to do something better the next time and so i think that rigor that look i can't just we did this a lot with jam legend and fantasy congress we just build a feature and then we'd be like okay great we made the built the feature it must be a better product now we really didn't understand whether that actually made the product better but being really goal focused and you know thinking, thinking about what the goal is what metrics would we use to try to define success of hitting that goal or not, and then doing something to try to affect it. And then going back afterwards and trying to understand what actually happened and being very kind of hypothesis driven and then kind of validating or invalidating the hypothesis um, was a big mindset shift in terms of you know, all the product work that I've been doing afterwards. Um, there were you know, many things, but I think that was probably the, the biggest uh, kind of mental shift that I had. Got it. So before we move into your next company, I know uh, one of the things that you did between uh, leaving Zynga and starting your next company was you were an entrepreneur in residence at Social Capital, right? So um, first and foremost, for those listening who don't know what that means, can you describe that role and what you did and worked on? Yeah, I was really lucky to be um, able to join Social Capital at that time as an entrepreneur in residence. And it's really a unique and, and interesting position. Um, basically, um, you know, you get to work under the umbrella of, of a venture capital firm, in this case, social capital. I was working with um, Chamath and Mamoon and Ted there and, and the rest of the team. And, um, you know, it, it, it's pretty flexible. There's no, you know, work that you need to produce for the, for the fund, but you get access to be able to talk to the partners and talk to other other people at the fund, talk with the portfolio and understand problems they're going to and use that as an opportunity to incubate um, ideas and, and test and validate them. Um, and then beyond that, you just get exposure to kind of the inner workings of, of, a, of a venture capital fund and kind of get to see and understand how things are, are happening, um, which was kind of my first exposure to that as well. Got it. So um, what, what, what are your, some of your key takeaways from your time at Social Capital? What are some of the biggest things that you've learned? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
well, to be fair, I, I, we only spent three months. I only spent three months there as an EIR before starting starting the next company. So it wasn't a lot of time. But I think um, the being, I think the most valuable piece there is this uh, having access to the the network and the partners there and being able to very quickly validate ideas. And so um, I was lucky to be there with. Uh, my co-founder, my dad co-founder, uh, we were both EIRs there at the same time, and so we were working together. And we had a lot of wild and crazy ideas, but it was really valuable to be able to test them with, um, you know, whoever was in the office at that time, uh, at that moment when you know, we thought genius had struck, and you kind of run over and you, you kind of were able to practice pitching it. Um, and because the partners have, you know, they've seen so many pitches, they're very quickly able to. Um, Give you some feedback and let you know if you're, you're probably on the right track or not. And now, no one knows, no one can really predict if that idea is going to be good or not. And ultimately, at some point, if you're the entrepreneur and you have a lot of conviction, then you know, it doesn't matter necessarily what they say or not. But um, it's nice uh, to be able to have that, that quick access. And otherwise, it's very hard to uh, pitch an investor over and over again without them thinking, <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind of crazy. But as an EIR, that's kind of what you're expected to do. Got it. So now I want to get into the next company that you built, Renzu, very briefly, right? So to start off with, could you start, actually, could you just tell me like the whole life cycle of the company, right? How did you get into founding it? What did you work on? And then uh, what was the acquisition like, similarly to what we talked about with Jam Legend? Yeah, I think, you know, with Renzu, this, which was now my third company, um, and what came out of incubating um, as an EIR and social capital, uh, we were really lucky to have a lot of wind at our back, at our inner backs. And so, um, one, we were able to you know, test and validate um, a lot of what we were doing. And I think basically when we were at Zynga, there was, a, especially once I was on the mobile side and, and trying to incubate uh, the new game there, uh, we realized that what we could do on the Facebook game side where you could very easily understand how your competitors are doing, what's happening there, because Facebook actually published a lot of data about um, usage on the various apps on the Facebook platform. Once you move over to mobile, there was very little data and very, very it was very hard to understand necessarily how other games in the space were doing. And um, we realized there's an opportunity to try to create a better analytical layer for competitive intelligence on the mobile side of things. And so that was kind of the, the core impetus behind Renzu and what we, what we, some of the core tech we developed that was really interesting was basically um, a way to tunnel all traffic on your mobile device through um, a, a VPN system. And so we were able to use that with um, people that opted in to be part of a panel in the same way that like a Nielsen television box like um, Flaps, which TV programs you, you, you use, we were able to track and understand um, which mobile applications they're using and from that panel extrapolate out and understand um, broader usage patterns around which apps uh, have not are just downloaded a lot but which apps are actually used and, and engaged uh, on, on deeply um, so that was the core technology that, that we built um, and uh, you know we were in the process of fundraising for a Series A after we, we, we've um, done our angel round. And um, around that same time, uh, 
Chamath at Social Capital, who led our angel round, um, had uh, a friend, Dave Goldberg, who was the CEO of SurveyMonkey. And uh, I think he was just casually mentioning our company to, to Dave, and Dave thought what we were doing was pretty interesting. And so uh, Chamath put us in touch, and um, my co-founder Andrew and I went to meet with Dave, um, and we just thought it was probably more of a partnership opportunity. And then that actually ended up turning into an acquisition discussion. And um, it was a, you know, really difficult because at the time we had a term sheet to raise a series A that we could have been forging our own path forward. And then SurveyMonkey had kind of more or less um, expressed interest in going down an acquisition path. And um, you know, the company was only eight months old. And so it was, uh, it was really difficult to, to kind of hand over the keys at that point. But, um, uh, you know, Dave Goldberg was such a phenomenal leader. And after a few meetings with him, it actually made, he made it clear that our product would be more successful under the umbrella of SurveyMonkey, given a lot of the products that they had already been building on the PAN side of things and around the data space. Um, and my, you know, my co-founders and I were also just really, really excited to work with Dale, Dave Goldberg as a, you know, just a legend and the opportunity to work with him closely and learn from him. And um, it, it's so sad that he unfortunately passed uh, before that deal closed and we never really even had a chance um, to get to work alongside him. But I think uh, largely because of, of, of who he was and his charisma and, and his vision for integrating Renzu with SurveyMonkey, I think it, it sold us on, on uh, making, kind of pursuing that acquisition. Awesome. So I'm curious, you had mostly been like game developer in terms of your coding experience. How did you get from there to building product intelligence metrics? <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I loved working on games. I still miss building games, but it's a really difficult business. Um, even a company like Zynga with all the resources that they had, um, it, it was not a guarantee, there's no guarantee that if you built a game that it was going to be successful. And it, um, you know, commercially, I think it's just really difficult to build a, a business around gaming where you can make a hit after hit after hit to sustain that business. And so what I realized is that as much as I enjoyed that, um, I kind of thought, well, what, what you know, I'd rather sell the, the shovels and pickaxes to the gold miners than be out there mining for gold. And so that's where, um, you know, I think we got excited about well, what are the layers of, well, what, are, what are the pieces of value that game developers, for example, may need and find value in. Hence, we kind of you know, came upon this concept around the competitive intelligence. Um, and so that was kind of the big shift to now thinking about what is a product or service we could sell to the games industry versus actually building the game itself. Awesome. Um, so now I want to talk a little bit more about like top level learning lessons and stuff like that. I'm going to move a little bit away from Rocket because I know you mentioned it towards the beginning. But mm -hmm. yeah, so um, thus far you've run uh, companies from anywhere from like one to like three-ish years, right? And then you've managed to get them acquired or you've uh, like scaled them down. So I'm curious with Rocket, what's kept you there so much longer than other companies? What is, well, and, and like I said, I'm not gonna talk very much about Rocket, but you know, uh, apparently we've wound back up there, <laughs> but um, what's what's kept you working at Rocket and interested in 
um, continuing it on the day-to-day -day, uh, relative to other companies? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, first of all, just in terms of the context, I, I with every company I've started, I've always hoped that I would be working on them for, uh, you know, 10 years plus, and there would be, you know, some, some massive success um, in, the, in such that I could work on them for a long time. And so I, I think it, in a weird way, because I've started now four companies and, and now I'm close to pretty much at four years uh, since starting Rocket, and it is the longest I've been at any one uh, company or, or that I founded or, or worked at, I guess. But um, uh, I, it's not that I in, ever intended the other companies to necessarily um, reach an end that soon. Um, but I think that probably just speaks to um, how well things are going with Rocket. First of all, I just feel really lucky to work with such a good team. I think that makes such a big difference. Both my, my co-founders and in our, the rest of the team there um, are really stellar. And um, you know, during the beginning of the lockdown after COVID, um, about three quarters of our clients came to us and said, okay, we're not hiring anymore. We gotta um, save our money and, and be more careful. And so our business like basically fell out from underneath us. But um, Having you know, we we <laughs> took that as an opportunity to to do whatever we could to um, work harder and like figure out our way through it. And we you know we spun out a product called Parachute List, which was uh, there to help those that were laid off in a lot of layoffs and help match those uh, uh, candidates with recruiters. Um, and and we, we were trying to be you know do whatever we could to, to, to help in, in that, that situation and also kind of find ways to continue to, to build the company. And so, uh, you know, when you have a team like that, that's able to kind of pivot on a dime and, and go through the ups and downs, uh, it just you know, tells you a lot. And so I think for those reasons, like, um, just we're excited to continue building and growing um, what, what, we, what we already have. Awesome. So um, now looking at the big picture of every company you've worked in, founded, other than product or idea, which for you in almost every case was like really good, what do you think it took you to build, scale, and for some of them, sell your companies, right? If you had to narrow it down to like, I don't know, two to three things, what would those be? Hmm. Um, I think the probably the biggest thing um, is just the, the people that I've been able to work with and surround myself with. I think um, at the end of the day, you know, despite all the technology and, and everything else, like it's ultimately about the people that make a company successful and um, having the right chemistry and the right team and um, the right ability to push each other, disagree, but Commit and agree at the end of the day, um, but and also work you know well and you know go weather the ups and downs. Of, with a startup, it's it's like a roller coaster um, every day, every week, and so just having people you can lean on, depend on, and trust through all that is really critical. And so I think um, if I think back to it, it's it all goes down to the people at the end of the day and having the right dynamic there that I think helps us. Um, you know, help you be successful in, in these businesses. So along that vein, what is something that you wish you had known when you were first starting out with any of your experiences, to be frank, right? Whether it was 
um, working with your calculator in seventh grade, uh, your time in college, any of your companies, uh, and acquisition, any experience? I think broadly, it, it's probably, um, I think I wished I had earlier on knew the power of really understanding and talking to the customer of your product to understand what, what they want and what they need. And I think in some cases I was really lucky because I was the customer. <laughs> like, you know, Jam Legend was a great example. I was building a, I love music, I love games, I love you know, uh, the combination of those two. And so I was able to kind of really understand and probably empathize with what a lot of our users wanted. Um, but in general, I think there's, um, it's rare to have that overlap and, and uh, line up so well. And so um, uh, early on in my career, especially, I think it is very much like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'll just build it. You know, I don't need to talk to other people. And I think um, making that switch to being much more user driven and user focused has probably made a, a big difference. And I wish I knew that earlier. Because I think that could have made even more impact in terms of everything we did with Fantasy Congress and Jam Legend and, and even many of the projects that worked on before that. So going off of that, um, I know you like like everyone, you've had failures, you've had huge successes, but at this stage, do you consider yourself, um, I don't know, from like a personal perspective from anywhere in your work, your career, do you consider yourself successful? Hmm. Yeah, I, I do. Um, I, I, it's hard to say, I guess, what what is the core of that? I think a lot of it is just, you know, I um, the, the people I surround myself with. I have a wonderful wife. I have two uh, delightful children, ages you know, two and five, and um, have some great co-founders and great team that I get to work with and a lot of amazing friends um, that I've worked with in the past or, you know, are in the startup community and ecosystem that I've gotten to know over, over time. And so I think just, um, that's the you know to me the really the, the real success and the, and the wealth that i've been lucky to to build um you know over the last 15 to 20 years but um you know, particularly over the last kind of just 14 15 years of my entrepreneurial journey um and i still you know stay in touch with um, my co-founders from fantasy congress and jam legend and, and you know um, a lot of the friends from those early days when i first moved to San Francisco. And um, we were just, again, living and working out of an apartment and uh, just having fun. Nice. So at this point, um, I'm gonna give you a hypothetical question, uh, which I ask everyone, right? So if you were back to being a teenager uh, with everything that's going on right now, COVID, everything like that, what would you build? Uh, how would you make money? Or just like, what would you do in general? <laughs> um, Lately, I've taken a lot of interest in um, health, actually, and um, one just like discovering my own high cholesterol at like age of twenty-five, and not really figuring out and understanding what I could do with it. And um, now, over the last ten years or so, learning a lot more, and ultimately discovering and figuring out that a lot of what I thought was true in health. And, and wellness to be basically polar opposite to what I'm discovering is actually the right thing. Um, so, I've, so I've become really curious in that and not just, I actually don't think it's like 
per se like too late in any point in <laughs> of life to switch or pivot into another area of interest. But I think if I was in, a, in high school, I would probably have, um, you know, I could push my career over to maybe have a little more focus on kind of health and, and medicine and maybe, you know, focus a little bit more there. Um, given that I, I think when I was younger, I was like, oh, we, we know all that. There's the textbooks that are written, but now it's clear to me how little we, we know and understand how quickly some of those things are changing. Um, and I do think there's a lot of power of the, the intersection of technology with that. Um, and particularly around just understanding our bodies and, and putting numbers and metrics to them, which is something you know I, I generally like. Um, so um, that's something that I, I find potentially really interesting. Um, I also do think there's a lot of opportunity and room for both um, uh, both kind of the the health and nutrition and food system, as well as um, the environment and the kind of interplay between the two. And um, when you just look at our food system and our agricultural practices there and what type of impact that can have on um, climate change over the next you know, decades, um, there's actually <laughs> such a tight uh, link between the two. And I do think there's a lot of opportunity there as well. And I think um, putting more energy against that would make a big difference. Awesome. So the final question that I ask uh, everyone who comes on is, uh, what is your favorite number? And because I think that every number has some form of significance behind it, how did you end up with that as your favorite number? Hmm. Um, I'd say my favorite number is, is nine. And it's interesting because I think as some influence from my grandfather, like I said, he's really into technology. He didn't have a college degree, but he's really into math and numbers and um, was really passionate about um, something called the magic square, which is basically an arrangement of numbers in, in a grid. Um, and no matter which way you total them up or down, left or right or diagonal, you total them to the same number. And um, the, the most basic one is, is a box of three by three, which is nine numbers. And you could lay that out into a magic square. And um, somehow like that seemed really interesting and special to me and my grandfather, Thought that there was like this real real power in nine and just in a weird way like the three by three like nine or like three you know it just like uh it feels like a very perfect number <laughs> in a weird way um uh, i don't know why but uh i think like in my mind <laughs> it's kind of embedded in that way and so that's 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 why nine is my favorite number that's cool it's one of the more unique explanations i've heard it's also i think the first number i've heard that is over four so um, definitely unique, <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, I think answering that question brings us to a really nice close. Um, so yeah, I wanted to thank you so much again for taking the time out to meet with me today and coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Anil. Really appreciate it.